Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen. And every other Friday, we together navigate the high seas of global politics. Today, we're here to talk about the changing dynamics in Iran, the current controversy surrounding a potential reset of the U.S.-Iran nuclear agreement, and the forces within and outside the Middle East that are shaping the conversation. A good time to talk about Iran, given developments that have happened of late with the nuclear power plant in Natanz. And we're going to be joined by Vali Nasser, Iranian-American professor and Middle East expert and former dean at SAIS Johns Hopkins, the alma mater of both Taya and I. It seems like every day we're inundated with news about the complications of trying to revive the Iran nuclear agreement, which fell apart in 2016 after the Trump administration abruptly just pulled out. And as global powers met this month in Vienna to resume talks, we're hearing rumblings of unhappy reactions from Israel, divisions on the issue within Europe, a new and more conciliatory tone from the US and a hard line from Tehran's foreign ministry, because it's under such domestic pressure from Shia clerics and revolutionary guards. Peter, let's take one step back and recap. So the deal the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, was struck in 2015 by President Obama, Iranian President Hassan Rani, and six other countries, U.S., U.K., France, Germany, Russia, and China. It was an effort then to achieve nuclear de-escalation. And in a nutshell, the promises by Iran were to put their nuclear ambitions on hold for a decade and a half in return for the West putting an end to the economic sanctions that were really crippling its economy. Criticism of the deal centered most around the fact that the agreement was silent about Iran's active interference in and subversion of other countries in the region. So when the Trump administration pulled out of the deal in 2017, no surprise, Iran retaliated by resuming their nuclear program and repeatedly breaching the terms of the agreement. So the discussions, another non-surprise, disintegrated despite Europe, who tried really hard to keep them alive. So now three years later, Iran has pushed towards its uranium enrichment facilities pretty quickly, but is still in an economic distress as sanctions have again begun to bite. So the recent meetings in Vienna were, I guess, Muni, a good step, a tentative step at rebuilding confidence with a willing new U.S. government now at the table. But the prospects and timing of all of this are pretty uncertain, giving high levels of mistrust on everybody's end, with each side wanting to make the other make the first concession. And importantly, Iran is facing presidential elections in June and domestic pressures for a more hardline approach that are weighing heavily on President Rouhani. Meanwhile, the neighborhood, which is never a good neighborhood, Muni, has become increasingly complex with shifting power structures and internal pressures. And like everything else in the Middle East, it's just damn complicated. In the past five years, Iran, Israel, and Turkey have grown in influence while countries like Egypt, Syria, and Iraq, which are traditional Middle Eastern powerhouses, have lost power. Saudi Arabia continues to be a military and economic powerhouse, but it's found its mojo pretty depleted given the Biden administration's displeasure with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's war in Yemen and his ordering of the gruesome killing of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Meanwhile, Iran has accelerated its support of Shia militias and missiles with money in a large swath of land that people call the Shia Crescent, which stretches basically from the Gulf 
to the Mediterranean through Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. Iran has also signed an ambitious 25-year cooperation agreement with China in exchange for oil. And this agreement is a game changer, shifting the dynamics significantly by increasing China's foothold in the Middle East and weakening further the hand of the United States. Meanwhile, Russia continues to be an unlikely intermediary, also vying for power in the Persian Gulf. So, Muni, it's the typical Middle Eastern shifting messes. The one thing that's true, Peter, is all sides agree that the longer the stalemate, the harder it will be to make some type of an agreement a reality. And meanwhile, every day, Iran comes closer and closer to be building a nuclear weapon. So what is the view from the youth in Iran? Let's hear from Tehan how tech-savvy young Iranians are shaping the political conversation and influencing the outcome of the deal and of the upcoming election. This is Taya Steik, and I'm Taya Ivanovich. Iran's youth opposition has been really well known for a long time, Muni, and Iran's youth have been politically active since the CIA's 1953 ouster of Prime Minister Mossadegh. The death of three students in those protests against Vice President Nixon's 1953 visit, it's still a national holiday today. And the young were also key players in the 1979 revolution. And today, their strength is also in numbers. It's important to note that a baby boom after the 1979 revolution almost doubled the population. And Iran is right now one of the youngest societies in the world. And that's skewing politics, the economy, and social pressure. Iran's demographics are probably the biggest threat to the religious establishment status quo. With over half of Iran's 82 million people under the age of 30, young people are the de facto opposition to the Islamist regime. And today's youth may be willing to sacrifice more to bring about change or continue the tradition of leaving Iran for better economic opportunities and personal freedom. And despite basically an electric curtain on the Internet, Iran has over 56 million Internet users, the largest online presence in the Middle East. And young people are among those who suffer sanctions the most. A stagnant economy means lack of investment, lack of dynamic jobs and a growing sense of hopelessness. And Iran's youth are also important, especially important when it comes to the current talks about the nuclear agreement. In 2015, when President Obama was pushing for the deal, he dedicated a video specifically aimed at Iran's youth to convince them and to pressure their leaders in order to open up Iran and a pathway towards what he called a brighter future. So I really say we need to look and watch the youth activism in Iran. Huge protests emerge after the Iran's 2009 presidential elections. And since then, young people have faced a whole host of problems like social repression, lack of opportunity and increased drug addiction, for example. So with presidential elections coming up in June, the question I'm leaving you all with is what can we expect from Iran's huge block of young voters? Let us know what you think on Twitter by tweeting at Altamar Podcast. That's really great that you point out how important young people have been in making large changes in Iran's recent history. This is a great time, of course, to introduce our guest, Vali Nazar. He's a professor of international affairs and Middle East studies at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, SAIS, 
after having been the dean of SAIS between 2012 and 2019. He served as a senior advisor to the U.S. government and author of the, in, of the Dispensable Nation and other books over the Middle East. He's advised policymakers and business leaders and is an avid writer and contributor to news and academic publications. He's also, as Peter mentioned, close to both Peter and Thea, SAIS graduates. So welcome to Altamar Bali Nazar. Thank you. So tensions have risen dramatically lately as reports accelerate about another Israeli sabotage operation in Iran. So we have many questions today. Let's spend a moment in this. Iran has suffered a number of military blows of late. Years ago, computers were infected with an Israeli-American cyberbug called Stuknet. And in early 2020, U.S. drones killed General Soleimani. Last November, Iranian senior nuclear scientist Mohsen Fakhridazeh was killed in a daring operation on the open road, and now comes a fire in Iran's nuclear installation. So what does this all say about Iran's defense establishment and its ability to be penetrated? The Iranian government's kind of aura of invincibility seems to be dissipating. Uh, Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast. I think it's a very good point. It's a point that is being debated in Iran uh, very uh, assiduously, partly because uh, generally the security forces, the conservatives had continuously uh, blamed, you know, dual citizens who they arrest and put in prison and more moderate and liberal forces as being uh, foreign agents. And yet uh, the most serious uh, security breaches in Iran have happened in areas where they are responsible for uh, for security. In other words, Iran's most sensitive nuclear installation and its most sensitive nuclear uh, personnel. It suggests that the Israelis and Americans are running uh, a very sophisticated ground game uh, in Iran, that they have operatives, they have uh, in, uh, infiltrated the uh, nuclear program, uh, missile program and others with uh, agents and that they're willing to carry out sabotage operations. Uh, Iran has decided not to respond to this, uh, and uh, it just plods along. I mean, its attitude has been that these would be momentary setbacks, and then it it basically picks up from there uh, and, and, and moves ahead. So no retaliation on the part of Iran? I think they're going to hold off on retaliation uh, until they know what's going to happen in talks with the U.S., because they know that the Israelis are baiting them. Uh, that Israelis would love for Iran to do something that would shift the discussion away from the nuclear talks to Iran's behavior and would, in fact, get in the United States into a direct confrontation with Iran. So they don't want to play Israel's game. Uh, but I, 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 and yes, there is a there is call for retaliation from within Iran. That even the general Iranian public is angry at the impunity with which Israel operates in Iran. But it's more important for Iran to create deterrence against Israel, that unless the Israelis worry about uh, some kind of backlash, that they will just continue doing this uh, unimpeded. So, Vali, let's move a little bit to the issue of the talks with the United States. And the Vienna conversation wrapped up recently with movie critics would call it mixed reviews. So what's your assessment of the meeting and its potential outcome? But the meeting was it was an important uh, breakthrough because uh, there hadn't been any meeting uh, whatsoever since President Biden took office. So this was the first meeting. But I would say that progress was very slow. So there were two sort of discussions that happened in, in uh, Vienna in tandem. One, one was on what Iran needs to do in order to get back into full compliance. And what is it that the United States needs to do get 
get back into full compliance? And as what set of sanctions does it, does it have to lift? And the Iranians believe that all Trump-era sanctions were put on Iran in bad faith. Iran was in full compliance according to International Atomic Energy in January 2017. And Trump moved out of the deal and put sanctions on Iran. So they basically mean full American compliance means going back to 2017. But the U.S., first of all, is reluctant to do that because it wants Iran to exceed to expanding the deal and be willing to negotiate on other issues. And secondly, uh, uh, as a poison pill, the, the Trump administration multi-designated sanctions. So let's say uh, an Iranian ship would be designated under the nuclear deal for not selling oil. But if you put the same ship also under terrorism designation, then it's not as easy to lift the sanctions. And Congress may make a hue and cry and say, well, this is not nuclear. This is about terrorism. So uh, in order to make it difficult for Biden to lift sanctions, uh, the Trump team had made these um, multi-designations. And now that basically has become, an, has become a major issue. I mean, both the region has changed as well as the politics have changed both inside Iran and in the United States. It's much harder to cut a deal, not only because of the hardened politics, but also because Russia and China have really expanded their influence. So if you were a Biden advisor, what would you suggest as a negotiating strategy, given the fact that it has to, all of these multiple things that it has to take into account, Russia, China, the hardening of positions inside the United States and in Iran, how, how would you advise the Biden administration? So the Biden administration is facing a number of issues. So yes, you're right. They're facing a much uh, more aggressive confrontation with China, which requires deployment of military assets, diplomatic assets to Asia. They're dealing with a aggressive Russia, which is poised to go to war with Ukraine again. And then we have our own domestic issues, a divided country, uh, a COVID, you know, a, an economy that's still recovering. And those are the places that Biden has said he wants to focus on, on, the, on the domestic scene on, and, and then on these big global issues. So, so that would tell you that they need to uh, get out of the Middle East faster. And, and the biggest issue in the Middle East is Iran, both because of its regional reach and the nuclear deal. So why can't they get to a deal? And the problem there is actually that our allies and particularly the Congress and even Democratic hawkish senators like Bob Menendez of New Jersey are pretty much very close to where Trump was on Iran. So uh, he has to deal with a Congress that, that doesn't want movement on Iran. So there are congressmen, senators who are writing to him and say, don't go back in the deal. Uh, there was a, a letter jointly written by Senator Menendez and Lindsey Graham, which basically tells you that Menendez is in the same camp as the hawkish Republican senator on Iran, telling President Biden that he shouldn't go back into the deal. So the domestic problem in the United States gives President Biden very a uh, great deal of hesitation in being bold with Iran. In other words, put on the table things that you want uh, uh you can give to Iran very clearly, say, we lift these sanctions if you go back uh, into compliance. Now, let's negotiate about how do we do the dance, who goes first, who takes the first step. But Biden's team is not, is not willing to do that. In fact, for the past three months, it basically has continued Trump's policies. So as, if you're sitting in Iran, you would say nothing changed when Biden came in. 
What about the landscape in the region? You've described the region as a power grab between Iran, Israel, and Turkey. You've also pointed to a week in Syria, Egypt, and Iraq, losing influence and yielding space for other actors. And also, always there's the question of Saudi Arabia. What is um, kind of your assessment of what's going on on the ground? Well, it's a very fraught situation, largely uh, because we have a number of failed states from Libya to Yemen to Iraq, uh, in reality, and to Syria. And then the U.S. wants to get out of Afghanistan by May 1st, which is also technically a, a failed state in the sense of the term outside of Kabul. Uh, so the reality is that the United States wants to leave all of this behind. Uh, majority of young people uh, on both sides of the aisle, uh, a lot of uh, uh, this bipartisan support for ending the forever wars in the Middle East, right? Why, why are we there? Why are we fighting every single war over there? Now, to end these wars, you have to bring, uh, you, have to, you have to get Iran on board. Uh, although Iran, for instance, is not a big player in Libya, but, but nevertheless, uh, you know, the end game to a lot of these conflicts, at least tamping them down requires some kind of diplomatic negotiation. And that means you, the United States has to be able to bring people in the room, get them to agree to a minimum settlement, arrive at a ceasefire, and reduce the temperature. And this is pretty important for Europe because, you know, if, if things continue, we're going to end up with ongoing waves of refugees to Europe, which is going to put pressure on, on European uh, politics as well. So, you know, the nuclear deal is a beginning uh, for also addressing all these sets of issues. Bali, talk to me. I mentioned earlier what must be uh, the Biden administration's preoccupation about China and Russia's increased influence in the region. How do you see these two superpowers expanding their influence? So very differently. I mean, Russia is, is largely an, a, a sort of an old style hard power actor. It's coming in with, with military muscle. He wants to sell arms to countries. He wants to help them negotiate peace deals in Moscow. It has sent troops into to Syria. It came in a big way into Syria. It has sent uh, uh, now um, military mercenaries and, and forces into Libya. It, uh, and we believe that Russia will not be able to sustain this. Uh, but the reality is that it's become quite a big player. It, did, it has made the impact on Syria and it has made an impact on Libya. And it may continue to do so. China is a bit more sophisticated. The Chinese don't want to send, um, for now, military assets. They don't want to take responsibility for the region. Their game plan is economic. They want to come in with this Belt and Road Initiative that they have and build strategic partnerships. They have one with Pakistan. They're negotiating one with Iran. They have very deep trade relationships and energy relationships with Persian Gulf monarchies. We always have sort of dismissed this, but reality is that we're also dealing with a different China. And, and on the back of economic power, eventually will come political influence, right? And, and, and China is also very important to the psychology of the region. In other words, if the Iranians think that they have China's support financially, then their attitude would be different. Or if the Saudis would have to worry about what the Chinese might think about certain things, because then they may not buy their oil, then they would behave in a different way. So, so the Chinese's uh, influence is very subtle. Uh, the, and the vacuum that the U.S. is leaving behind is very, very slowly getting filled. Some of that may not be bad. I mean, after all, the United States does not want to be the sole power responsible for the Middle East. 
but it has no engagement with Russia and China about the region. It doesn't talk to them about the region. So every time there is a meeting with the Russian and the Chinese, it's very specifically about U.S. relations with them on, on East Asia or on Europe or on trade, but not on these issues. Talk to us a little bit about what's happening inside Iran, and in particular, there's an election uh, to take place very soon. What do you think happens in the election, and how do you think the election affects the foreign policy? Well, this election will have a big impact on foreign policy, largely because foreign policy is a big part of this election. I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the moderates won big on two separate elections on the promise that they're going to have a nuclear deal with the United States. They're going to open Iran to trade and, and that there was expectation of enhancement of quality of life for middle class, for the poor, etc. The opposite happened. In other words, the nuclear deal not only did not produce those things, but actually became reason for Iran being put under maximum pressure. So the Iranian public is angry. Well, yeah, we know they're angry at their own government for varieties of things, but they're also angry at the United States. They're angry at Israel. Uh, they're angry at the security situation. And increasingly, there is an argument prevalent in Iran that the um, moderates and reformists are not able to address Iran's security issues. It's almost like when in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, Americans always thought that the Republicans would be better at managing the Soviet Union, rightly or wrongly. So right now, the moderates in Iran are not even fielding a serious candidate because the formula they sold the Iranians didn't work, right? They were supposed to be the face that would open up Iran to the United States. The U.S. has rebuffed them. So the conservatives are saying, you step aside, let us handle Washington. Let us handle the European. And more than likely, we're going to see a more hardline Iranian candidate win the presidency that will have an impact most immediately on the nuclear talks. Uh, first of all, a new team means that you're not going to be even continuing the new nuclear conversation till September when they come in. And then after that, you're going to have fresh faces who won the elections on the back of being tough with the U.S. Who, who do you think will win? We don't know yet. I mean, the candidates, uh, uh, the final list will be vetted by May 11th. There are two or three candidates that are former Revolutionary Guard commanders which are running on a sort of law and order and, and also management ticket. There are a few uh, members of the parliament, conservatives running. And, you know, there, there are a smattering of moderate and reformist candidates running, but none are really serious candidates. I mean, most people think that we won't know the real sort of dark horse until closer to date. And also a lot rests on Vienna. If the Iranians end up coming back from Vienna completely empty-handed, then that would be decisive. Let me ask you and press you a little bit on the other side, the political problems here. You mentioned Menendez and others who have continued to believe that Iran's subversive behavior has only accelerated yet. And people talk about the, the Shia crescent from the Gulf to the Mediterranean and that Iran basically is subverting other states. I mean, how does one include this in the nuclear talks? Because it's, it's going to be hard not to include it. No, it's going to be hard to include it. Uh, uh, and actually, first of all, I don't buy the fact that the nuclear deal made Iran more aggressive. I think that was a very good talking point that Iran's enemies in the region put on the table and it has stuck. I mean, the reality is that the United States also turned around right after the, the deal and, and sold hundreds of billions of dollars of weaponry to Iran's rivals. 
So Iran began to invest in its own uh, missiles and proxies, etc. And and it's it's true that it is in a in a massive competition with with Turkey and and Saudi Arabia and Israel over control of the region. It's not the only country responsible for subversion and the like. But the reality of it is, you're not going to change Iran's behavior without having this nuclear deal, because the maximum pressure and the nuclear deal has given Iran every incentive to retaliate and to make life more difficult for the United States. There's no incentive, in, in a sense, to deal with it. Now, the problem with negotiations is that you can't have everything on the table in the negotiations, right? If, you, if, you go, if you're going to put everything on the table, you're going to be negotiating forever. And you can't say, well, we want to talk about, and then you go to the Iranians and say, okay, we want, we're going to give you these sanctions. And then they will say, okay, these sanctions are worth this policy. So what do you want? Do you want to talk about Iraq? Or do you want to talk about missiles? Or do you want to talk about the nuclear program? You, you're not going to talk about everything, right? And in any negotiations, both sides begin to narrow down to what's the most urgent issue. Right. And the most urgent issue for the United States is the nuclear program, because if Iran gave up everything else, like the regional issues, but became North Korea internally with tons of bombs, we, we, that would be more dangerous to everybody. Right. So the talks with Iran have to be not all in one, but in a series. First, nuclear. If you actually succeed, build trust, then you go to the next thing, then you go to the next thing. And we fumbled the ball on the first one. We got a nuclear deal and then we withdrew from it. And now we're, we're basically saying, oh, well, we reneged on the smaller deal. Now let's talk about everything. And the Iranians say, you know, uh, you can't even buy a carpet that way, let alone, let alone our entire national security policy. Probably final question. Iran is one of the youngest societies in the world. What do young mm. people want and how much influence do they have? Well, the young people in Iran are extremely diverse. I mean, the entire population is young. It's not just that the young people are all pro-Western, uh, uh, you know, liberal. That, that's a big segment. But also most of the revolutionary guards and, and, and the thugs that they deploy in the street are, are also high school dropouts and, and young people. I think foremost, what across the board the, and the, the, the sort of the poorer segment of the people want is, is jobs, economic security and opportunity which has actually been doing And then the, those who actually have money and have the means want cultural freedoms. In fact, one of the reasons that why in the past five, uh, five years under Trump, you didn't have a mass movement in Iran is because what the, what the rich want in Iran, what the, what the middle class want in Iran is different from what the poor want in Iran, right? The poor want what the rich have. They want economic distribution. They want, they want jobs. They want, uh, uh, those sort of things, the, the ones who have those things want to do away with hijab, they want political freedoms. But all put together, Iranians want a different country, I think. They want a country that is engaged in the world, uh, that is respected, that, that is doing trade and business in the world, and that domestically is much more open. And there are, there are things that any young generation wants, which is different from the older generation. I mean, the generational change itself is important. And, and they haven't got into the seats of power. The, the power elite in Iran are very old. Uh, and the people they rule across the board, right-wing, left-wing, liberal, conservative, are very young. So Iran's is well set for change. We just don't know how it's going to happen and in which direction. Thank you very much, Vali Nazar. Thanks for joining us on Altamar. Thank you very much for inviting me.
Peter, I'm struck by kind of two ideas that I took out of this very um, comprehensive interview. The first is the idea of Iran as non-aggressive, as seeking deterrence, as being kind of a, a peaceful partner. I, I, that's very contradicting with the, some of the things we hear. And the other one is how this very young population is governed by very old people and how that transition can take place. I, I really didn't hear the peaceful partner. I heard that you can't negotiate everything at once. And you know, that may be true, but the fact is that the world has changed since Trump. And while we're all trying to change it back to something more rational and moderate, I, I don't think it's that easy to do uh, within the first six months of an administration. So um, if, you know, what struck me is that if um, the Iranians don't get anything out of Vienna, the next president of Iran is going to be a hardliner that comes from the Revolutionary Guards or something of that type, we're in for a really difficult four years, if that's the case, between Israel and the United States and Turkey and Russia and China. It's a mess. A lot to think about. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and listen on your platform of choice. Thank you for joining us. See you next time.